0: When I decided to open up the store, my wife was fully supportive, but my kids were very concerned, and at what point they asked my wife, what the heck is dad doing opening up a bike shop? He doesn't know anything about bikes. And my daughter called me up one day and said, you know, my friend's dad bought one of your bikes and he thinks it's really cool. My name is Don Costanzo. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Pedego Electric Bikes. We manufacture, sell electric bikes through a chain of about 100-plus retail stores around the world. About 75 are in the U.S., and the other 25 are scattered around the world in Canada, Italy, France, and England.
1: Well, you've always been a bicycle rider? How'd you get into this?
0: Interestingly enough, I've never been a bicycle rider, except when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I had my share of Stingrays and then 10-speed bikes. But when I became 16 and got my driver's license, that was the end of bicycle bikes until I turned 50. And when I turned 50, I lived at the beach and I had a big hill to go up after I rode down at the beach. So I never rode my bike because I hated to climb that hill afterwards. But I heard about electric bikes. So I bought one and son of a gun, it got me up the hill. And I realized, well, maybe there's something to this. So after I bought one, I then bought five or six more so my friends could ride with me. And I had a garage full of them and we had a blast, but I had a difficult time buying one. So then I opened a retail store to do nothing but sell them in Newport Beach in two 2007, and I became the largest electric bike store in the country in a matter of 12 months, not because I was so good, but because everybody else was so bad.
1: What age did you open the uh, bike shop? I was 50. And how old are you today? 60. Okay. What'd you do the first 50 years in between?
0: Well, I was primarily involved in various phases of various forms of the automotive business. I worked, my family had a chain of car dealerships. I worked there. And most of my career though, I spent with an automotive chemical company called WINS, W-Y-N-N-S. And WINS was a 65-year-old automotive chemical company that I started with pretty much out of school in an entry-level sales job and over the period of 23, 24 years, I worked my way up to become the president. I had that job for three years, but then the company was acquired by a larger company. Wins was an entrepreneurial company. The company that acquired us was not, and so it didn't last very long. And I launched myself into becoming an entrepreneur.
1: I guess there's 23 or so years that you're a wind Oil Company. Can you tell us about that and what you learned about becoming an entrepreneur? Sure. Well, for, first of all, it was
0: founded by an entrepreneur, a guy named Carl Wynn, who uh, created this, I call it magic goop. It was some chemical in a can that made your car run better whether it be oil treatment or gas treatment or uh, lots of iterations of that. And it it had morphed into more of an equipment and chemical supply company. And I worked my way up into national accounts. I took care of our major accounts. Back then the automotive repair facilities were Sears, Montgomery Wards, JCPenney, Firestone, Goodyear. They had automotive service centers and they all had hundreds and sometimes thousands of outlets. And I became the national account representative for the company to them, was successful, they made me a division director, general manager of an air conditioning company We in Texas. I moved there, and I came back to California and took over another division as a vice president. And ultimately, I became president of the company with about $200 million in sales, about 400 employees worldwide. What I learned most about it, though, was is their distribution method. Uh, WINS had a unique model where no matter where in the world you went, to buy Winds products, you would buy it from a Winds distributor, and these were people that signed up to carry only the Winds product. They carried them in warehouses and they distributed them, and they had Winds vans and they drove around in the early days to gas stations and garages, in later days to car dealerships, offering their services. And uh, we'd have annual meetings, we would have regional meetings uh, on a quarterly basis, and everybody ate, drank, and slept the Winds product. I built the Pedigo business on the same model where we have exclusive dealers that eat, drink, and sleep the Pedego product.
1: So from there, basically, you ended up retiring for a few years, and then you got into the bikes by accident?
0: No, actually, I didn't retire. I, along with a partner, we bought a company like Wins that was near bankruptcy, small company, and we grew it over a five-year period, it was called ZAK, Z-A-K. And essentially, it did the same thing that Wins did, provided uh, products and equipment for automotive repair. And in 2008, I sold my share of that
1: to start Pedago. Could you tell us about buying Zach products? Like how did you stumble upon being able to acquire this? And can you tell us what you learned from that? Sure. Well, first of all, I took the experience that I'd
0: have 20 years of being in wins to figure out exactly what we should do and how we should do it. And I recognized that we needed a brand and we need some kind of brand recognition. I was sort of spoiled by WINS no matter where I went in the world. People had heard of WINS. It'd been around for 60 years. People were aware of the brand and it had great brand recognition worldwide. When I acquired Zach, just the opposite was true. Nobody ever heard of it. So in going into various automotive repair facilities, they're like, Zach, who the heck is Zach? So along the way, I recognized that the brand was critical to our having any degree of success. So so, uh, shortly after that, I co-founded a publication called Fixed Ops Magazine, which went to all the franchise car dealerships. They were the target market, and we discovered that they didn't have a trade magazine or a conference. So we founded Fixed Ops Magazine as a publishing company with no knowledge, no experience of the publishing company, but my partner did buy publishing for dummies, and that qualified us to be a publisher. So we still own that today. It's 12 years old. It's the defining publication for the automotive service business, but at the same time, it allowed Zach to get some recognition because obviously since we own the magazine, We got a lot of free ads and free publicity and free editorial about the company. And it puts Zach on the map. That's when I got another lesson in branding. And the first time I got a lesson in branding, it was in wins. And I didn't realize what a good lesson it is. But if you're the brand, it's a huge advantage over people who don't have brand. And then when we did Zach, it was the same thing. And I discovered exactly how to develop a brand, what pieces I needed to do, what publicity we needed to do. And there, we were still in the print age. They were in the digital age. But back then, having print articles about us and our products and our services and guest editorials in ways that the dealers could make more money became very powerful in allowing us to get some brand recognition for the company Zach. And so when I sold that company in 2008 in designing Pedigo, I took the experience of having a company with a great reputation for a long period of time, building a reputation, and then taking that and deciding that Pedigo would be the the best established brand. Fortunately for us, nobody is chasing us in this industry. The traditional Bicycle companies are trying to rely on their past reputation. And you know the the largest bicycle company in the U.S. doesn't have a whole lot of brand recognition with people outside the cycling world, and that actually played very well for us because they didn't have any reputation among the people who are buying electric bikes. So we, by taking Pedego and kind of following the same footsteps, we designed an, our publishing company created another magazine called Bicycle Dealer Magazine, and for three years we uh, went out and published that magazine and featured Pedegos on the cover at various times and had editorials in there about us and of course we were an advertiser and it allowed us to establish pedigo as the leading brand of electric bikes in the u.s
1: as we're transitioning from zach to pedigo you were 50 50 partners at zach no
0: at Zach. i uh, i started it as a 70 30 partner mm-hmm.
1: and i started pedigo the same way. you sold your all your ownership interest in zach i did could you tell us about that was that an easy transition i mean i don't know if you had the same partner you're talking about from before and what that conversation was like
0: no well it was different it was a different partner so in a zach scenario there was. The step in between that I left out, I sold out to our largest customer. So once Zach was established, we'd established our relationship with a, with a large dealership chain and they liked the business model and they liked what it did, and they approached us. They approached us about acquiring the company. So they acquired the majority share of the company about two years after we acquired it. And then I became a sixteen and a half percent partner, and my other partner became an eight and a half percent partner. So collectively, we had twenty five percent of the company, and they had seventy five percent company. And that was a great run because it worked out best. We we ran our own company. We're entrepreneurial. We had ownership stake, and at the end of the day, we didn't have to worry about any capital. They had unlimited amount
1: of capital for us to be able to build the company. From there, you ended up selling in all the your percentage and then going into Pedigo?
0: Yes. In 2008, they'd made a decision. They wanted all their companies collapsing down into uh, Dallas, Fort Worth to live in the Dallas area. And I was unwilling to do that. So we worked out a buyout where they purchased my shares and I used that money to start Pedigo.
1: When you're doing this, was it just kind of, it was happenstance when you were going up the hill? Or, I don't know if it just conveniently happened around the same time or had it go in the back of your mind while you're at the other company?
0: Well, yeah, you know, things kind of happen out that, happen that way. So the company, Zach, was based in Dallas and I lived in California. So I would go back there once a month for about a week and it had my office was in Dallas, but I commuted back and forth. But the other three weeks I worked out of my home office and or had some time on my hands and I got involved in some nonprofit. At charities and did some work in that regard. And during that time, I found that the best way to get around was on one of these electric bikes. So living at the beach and being able to have an electric bike to ride around and go to lunch or to go to meetings was very worthwhile and I, I enjoyed the bikes immensely. And at the same time, I decided there might be an opportunity. And as a hobby, I opened up a bike store in 2007 in Newport Beach, do nothing but sell electric bikes. And that's when I became the, the largest electric bike store in the country. And it was only after reading an article about the electric bike business about a guy in New York who claimed to be the largest electric bike dealer in the country. But he was his biggest market, he said, was in California. And I thought, well, that's a little bit backwards. Why would a guy in New York and a retail store be successful in California? And it was because there was a niche here that the demand was in California, but he was based in New York. And that inspired me to open up a store. And I was a little bit crazy when I did it because my rent was $6,700 a month. I rented a 3,500-square-foot facility to sell electric bikes, electric cars, electric scooters, electric skateboards skateboards. skateboards and electric golf carts. And during that 12-month period, I call it the R&D phase, I was doing that part-time while I was involved with Zach. And I learned a tremendous amount. When the opportunity came to A, start with an electric bike company and B, to sell out my company that I'd lacked passion for, I decided that this was a no-brainer and that I should sell that company and use that money to start Pedigo, which is exactly what I did.
1: So at the same time, did you realize you didn't want to be in electric scooters or electric anything else, only electric bikes?
0: Yeah, well, exactly. So most of what we ended up doing was the customers wanted to buy the electric bikes. They had the passion for it. I had the passion for it. I mean, I like the electric golf carts and the electric car that we were doing was a, was his, the company since gone out of business. It was, it was before the, the advent of a lithium ion battery. So that was probably the turning point when in 2008, when I discovered that these lithium ion batteries would be the game changer in everything, in cars, in bikes, in motorcycles. It's just now becoming a vogue in even in electric golf carts, but the electric bikes were the best application for these lithium batteries because of the weight and the longevity and the lithium changed everything. And most of the electric bike companies I was doing business with when I had a store only had lead acid batteries. And we were on the frontier of of launching the lithium battery in the electric bike. And that was kind of a turning point for us. We realized we could get a third of the weight, 10 times longer range and 100 times more longevity. That made the lithium ion battery be the obvious choice for electric bicycles.
1: Uh, You just hit on my next question, really the difference between the lead acid and the lithium. But I guess when you're talking about the weight, the range, longevity, how about the price? Was there anything else also that was different that was a game changer?
0: Well, when we, I wouldn't say it was a game changer. I would say that uh, prices evolved. When I was starting selling these electric bikes, I was selling a a fairly iffy bike for $1,500 to $1,800, depending whether they had a lithium battery or a lead acid battery. And the customers were all willing to pay that extra money to get that lithium ion battery. And at that time, when we launched Pedego, we launched in that same price point. And where the rest of the industry was selling $500 and $800 electric bikes, we were selling $1,800 electric bikes. And people thought it was just crazy. But it allowed us to have enough margin and enough dollars in order to build a brand. And today, our prices, our average price is about $3,000. There's still $500 and $1,500 electric bikes that are pretty much garbage. And then there are bikes that are over $2,000, which start to get into a quality product. To get a good quality lithium-ion bicycle, to build it and to manufacture it, and for everybody to make a little bit of margin on it, it's going to be at least $2,000. But today, we're mid-range priced. Most of the electric bikes out there tonight, the average would be about $3,000 retail. There's a lot of that are six, seven, even ten thousand dollars in retail price for the electric bike. So the lithium was a game changer. The timing was very good. We were there when lithium was just becoming of age, and since that time, it's been a huge benefit to us. With all the money being spent by the automotive companies on electric bikes, you know what Tesla spends and all the car companies spend now to develop the lithium-ion technology to get better and better. We 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 get the benefit of that. We certainly couldn't afford the billions of dollars of money that's gone into technology improvement the batteries. But today, the Tesla car has 7,000 of the same similar cells that we use in our bike. We use Panasonic cells. They use Panasonic cells. The chemistry in the battery may be different, but the idea is almost identical. And just envision a bunch of big oversized AA batteries all strapped together into packs that are what power. And in our case, we may have 60 to 75 of these cells on our bikes, where the Tesla would have 7,000 of these cells lining the bottom of their car.
1: do when we go back to the beginning of the pet go, I mean, did anyone think you were crazy about open electric bike? Did you have a wife and kids? And what was your personal life like when you were opening that? Well.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. When I decided to open up the store, it was one thing. It was a hobby. It was something you know that I wanted to do. When I uh, sold my interest in Zach and decided to start Pedego, my wife was fully supportive, totally got it. But my kids were very concerned. And at what point they asked my wife, does dad know what he's doing? This is out of his experience. What the heck is dad doing opening up a bike shop? He doesn't know anything about bikes. And my wife responded. She goes, trust me, he knows exactly what he's doing. And uh, that story's been recounted multiple times times over the last 10 years as we've built Pedago.
1: every christmas just what, about when do you need christmas presents do you remember
0: the, the turning point i think was when my daughter called me up one day and said you know one of my friend's dad bought one of your bikes and he thinks it's really cool I took that as a dad to think that, hey, if, if he thinks my bikes are cool, therefore I must be cool. So I went from being just dad it might have been square to being cool because now my products were cool in the eyes of my daughter.
1: So obviously now we'll have to put that on there as the uh, title of the podcast, but we're dealing with a cool dad here. There we go. Uh, yeah. So well, why don't we talk about going from your first expansion, I guess maybe that first store to the next one and how you've grown over the years, if you don't mind taking this maybe like year by year.
0: No, not at all. Well, first of all, I'd say we struggled quite a bit in the beginning. Our our biggest challenge since we started the business was the uh, retail distribution model. And we were very frustrated and discouraged by what we were finding in the field. We we designed some really cool looking bikes. We decided that we would target the, the baby boomer rather than the cyclist or approached bicycle shops. They not only shunned us, but they had a contentious attitude toward us and toward electric bikes. And they were very judgmental and very critical about the not only the the company itself, but even more important, the whole idea of electric bikes. One of the dealers said to me one day, "Why would you take a perfectly good bicycle and ruin it by putting a motor on?" It? And so that created quite a challenge for us. Uh, we 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 kicked and, and clawed our way into scooter shops. We basically anybody that had a credit card and a pulse that was willing to buy our bikes became dealers. At one point in 2009, we even launched a neighborhood electric dealer concept, where if you liked the bikes and you were a customer and you wanted to sell them you could open one in your garage and you could buy three bikes from us and become a dealer Use those bikes as your demonstration models, and sell the bikes to the customers. And then we would drop ship it directly to the customer, or you could come by and pick them up and deliver them to your customer. And we sold quite a few bucks, bikes that way. It got our it got our brand out there. But after we ran out of our family and friends, the thing kind of fell flat because people felt uncomfortable spending two or three thousand dollars. In our case, most people buy two of them, so spending four or five thousand dollars on a pair of electric bikes that uh, the model didn't look like it was going to be sustainable. So we continued down the road of trying to identify what the best way is to get the products to the customers. And the biggest challenge we had is nobody knew what an electric bike was. Some people thought they were scooters. Some people in the industry want to refer to them as e-bikes, which a lot of people think of when they think of an e-bike, they think of a scooter. And we certainly aren't a scooter. I mean, we're a bicycle with a little bit of assistance on it. So we struggled with the the distribution model until 2011, when one of our customers that uh, bought a bike brought in a friend of his who also bought a few bikes and said he wanted open up a store to do nothing but sell pedagogy, to which I replied, well, uh, I don't think that will work. I think you need to rent them too. And his response was, well, of course, we're going to rent them. That's how we're going to get people to try them. And that was probably the turning point. We opened the first store in 2011 in Huntington Beach, California. We uh, opened up a store two blocks from the beach on a, on a side street, but a fairly well-traveled side street right off a block off the main street. And we rented and sold Pedigo's there. That store has been a success since day one. In fact, just three months after he opened it, he wanted to open a second location, at which point we grabbed him and said, look, let's open up 100 of these and you help us. And uh, that's exactly what we did. So he he still owns the store in Huntington Beach, but he also works for us and is out uh, helping each dealer, not only in getting into the process of opening a one, but also supporting them down the road as they need help. Today, he's on his way to our Portland store there to get... Some help and guidance to our our dealer there, so that he can you know do a better job at what he's doing.
1: The main thing was actually renting him at first, you think? So you just got more exposure.
0: Yeah, that was the trick. Okay, so it, it's we're still and still today we're in the early adopter phase. Most people still have, don't know what an electric bike is. If they do, they're not exactly sure what it is. And our secret sauce was going out making these bikes available for rent so that people could come into the Pedego store and they don't have to spend $3,000 to buy one. They just have to invest 50 bucks to rent one. And that changed everything. It changed everything in a way that people would rent them and say, oh my God, I need these in Omaha. When I go back, uh, when I go back home, or uh, you know, or great, right, I live here. This is a great way to get around here. So that was kind of the taste. It's sort of like if you go to Costco and they have these taste testers there, tasting the wheat bread with lathered with some uh, good butter and jam. You go, wow, that's really good. I think I'll buy some. You go over to the case and you pick up a, a loaf of it. The same thing is true here. We have to get the taste out. We have to get people to experience the bikes, and once they do, but they become raving fans.
1: If people are just listening, can you? Do- describe the experience how it's different from the regular bike and especially when you're like talking about going up a hill
0: okay so um i can't describe it in any way we could spend three hours on the phone and i could try to describe all it right. to you until you experienced and rode one i'll do the best i can i can say this it's more fun riding these bikes up a hill than it is down in everybody says that and because there's a sense of empowerment that you've got a little bit of boost when you're pedaling to allow you to get up the hill with relative ease so it essentially flattens all the hill in the cycling world, unless you're a competitive cyclist where you're training, going up a hill is kind of the, the unpleasant part about the ride. In our case, just the opposite is true. Going up the hill is the most pleasant part of the ride because you feel the sense of empowerment where your legs are still moving, but you're you're getting up the hill with a little bit of a boost. And the best way to describe it would when you started learning how to ride a bike and your dad was behind you pushing you along to get you going so you could get your balance. That's exactly what it feels consistently all the time when you're riding a bike, when the power's in But if you were to picture a bike, you would picture just a regular bicycle. We start out with cruiser bikes. Just think of a Schwinn Beach Cruiser from the 60s, and that's what our bikes look like. The power is aided by four components. It's a battery, a motor, a controller, which is a microprocessor, and then some type of device that allows you to power the bike, either a throttle, like on a motorcycle, or with a pedal assist function, which adds power as you're pedaling. Our products have both of those features on it. They have both a throttle and they have a pedal assist feature, so you can ride it either way.
1: You said in the beginning is that were you just selling other people's and now you just make your own? Is that the difference? And can you tell us about the difference between it?
0: Sure. When I opened up the store in 2007 in Newport Beach, I was selling everybody. I sold every brand under the sun. At that time, there weren't that many. I think there were five brands. We were the sixth to come on the front in 2008, but there were about five different brands, and I sold all those brands. And sadly, they did a horrible job in understanding the customer. They did even a worse job in supporting us, me as a dealer. They couldn't provide any repair parts. They would sell anybody and their brother at a lower price than I could buy them for. It was a very frustrating experience, but the customer got. I mean, I could see it in the customer's eyes and in the smiles that this was a a viable business model and this was gonna go places. So that first year, we sold all the other brands. Today of these six brands in 2008 when I started only me and one other brand exist the other four have since faded into the, into the abyss today there's about 106 companies selling electric bikes but in that early stage I discovered what the strengths and weaknesses were of all my competitors when I started the reason that Pedego was formed because I saw a niche and said these people do not understand the market they don't understand the products that the market wants and in my last few months of that story, I was actually converting bikes. I was finding good, colorful cruiser bikes that I was able to convert to electric rather than buying the bikes already readily manufactured. And while that helped me learn and understand what the market wanted, it was a terrible way to do it because the bikes weren't designed to have electric systems on them. The braking powers weren't powerful enough. The frames weren't strong enough. The forks weren't strong enough. And looking back, it was probably not a smart move to do what I did. But as it turned out, it was just a stepping stone necessary for us to learn and understand how we wanted to design the bikes. The biggest thing that I learned in having that shop was that most of the bikes had a rack that was strapped on the back with a couple of screws. It would just that would hold the battery. And the battery at that time weighed 30 pounds. They now weigh six, but they were heavy. So the number one thing I wanted to design into the bike was that battery integrated onto a rack that was put on the bike when the frame was manufactured. So it was solid and rigid. So there's no add-on piece to the bike. The the bike is, in fact, the battery is designed to be on the bike when it's built. So the battery then slides into or onto that rack and it makes for a very firm, solid bike without rattles or squeaks or, or the thing falling off. So that was really a a huge product development lesson to learn kind of the hard way, if you will, but from the get-go, we built our bikes with that battery integrated on the back of the bike as part of a rack. Since then, we've been integrated now in the frame as well.
1: Well, could you tell us about that experience? Because it seems like a different level of understanding to go ahead and develop your own bike as far as like finding manufacturers, et cetera, versus selling those other ones and finding out what was good in them and what wasn't.
0: So, well, the first thing was, is we didn't approach it from a bicycle standpoint. We approached it from a, uh, what is the customer want standpoint. The most important thing that we knew the customer's Wanted to, they wanted to be comfortable. They wanted a comfortable seat. They wanted comfortable hand grips. And most importantly, they wanted to sit upright. The cycling industry is really focused on, on performance and speed and getting the optimum range you can on the amount of energy you have. So therefore, they tend to want to put you in a crouched down position. And that position has you looking at the ground. just envision sitting on a bike that's got handlebars that they call drop-down handlebars. You're down there leaning down, and the whole time you're riding the bike, you're sitting down there looking at the ground, and you've got to crane your neck up in order to see what's in front of you or to enjoy the scenery. On the electric bike, we built it with the exact opposite thing in mind. We designed them so that the customer's sitting upright. They've got a big, cushy seat to sit on. They've got nice, soft, padded hand grips, and their legs are out in front of them. E And that gives you a whole different ride experience. It's the difference between bending over all day long, you know, hunched over uh, like a hunchback or sitting in your easy chair. And our demographic, our baby boomer customers, because they haven't ridden the bikes in a long time, they obviously prefer the upright position. The reason to have the down position is of course to cut down wind resistance so it's easier to pedal the bike. Well, in our case, we don't need to worry about that because we've got a motor and a battery that are gonna help overcome the wind. So that became a non-event. And that was a critical design time. Idea that I had when we started designing the bikes, the process we went to a, a car design guy who had an interest in bikes and he said he could help us. So he designs automobiles. In fact, he did, I think he built the first four or five prototypes for Tesla and he's done other electric cars as well, but he, he really understood the electric bike model. So he provided us the CAD cam drawings based on what I said I wanted. You know, I took pictures off the internet. I took pictures from catalogs and said, this is what I want the bike to look at. And then we would sketch in the rack. That became the first part of the design. So armed with these CAD CAM drawings, uh, we went off to China, my business partner and I. I've been to China several times. He had never been there, but he did read a book called Poorly Built in China. He was very concerned and very apprehensive about every place we went. And we discovered very quickly of the 1,400 factories there that claimed to make electric bikes, none of them, and I repeat, none of them we felt could do an adequate job in building the product that we wanted to, mainly from a quality standpoint and from an understanding of how important the components are and delivering us a, a quality product. But we were kind of struggled. So we had two of them build samples for us. Uh, the two best of the eight that we visited, we got them and they were just garbage and we were very... Very discouraged at this point you know we've had plans we thought we had it all dialed in And during 2009 we were very much in a stalemate not being able to find a manufacturer but i did find a bike online that was being sold in England that I thought had everything I was looking for. It had a built-in rack. It was the right design, the right cruiser. So through some sleuthing, I was able to determine who the manufacturer was. Planned another trip to China, got to know the guy. Turned out he was educated here in the U.S., spoke English perfectly. And we decided he was the guy that we wanted to partner with. And we've been with him since we started in 2009 manufacturing bikes he got it he was able to deliver us the quality we want he was able to grow with us we've made him a wealthy guy in china he's been very uh, been a great partner for
1: us found that manufacturer how much time are we talking about between you getting those cad drawings and pricing and how much did it cost to try to do all these edits to the bike and try to find the right manufacturer
0: well first of all we were reasonably well capitalized at the point at that time because i had and and doubled down basically taking all the money i'd made from selling zach and clouded into this company you know, the way I set up a business like this, whoever puts up the money gets the dominant share. So I was the money guy and the operator. So that's why I had 70%. And that's why my partner had 30 But we had plenty of dry powder. So we we're able to take our time and do it right. So it took us most of 2009 before we could have a product to sell. We did sell some bikes in that time. Uh, we were able to get you know a handful of bikes made in late 2009. Our selling really started in 2010. So the the time we put in into getting samples and to working out the, the the bugs, you know, we would get a sample, a small shipment of say 40 or 50 bikes, and they were far from perfect. But we had a demand that people wanted to buy them anyway, so we would sell them to them, and they would go and build another 50, and we would refine it, and we'd build another. 50 50 and then we refine it. And each order takes about 90 days from the time you order it to the time you receive it you're able to sell it. So, you know, we went through a few cycles of that and it wasn't we didn't get into our stride until sometime in, in mid 2010 when we figured it out and we were building a quality product and we could start going out and setting up distribution.
1: What's your advice for someone who wanted to get something manufactured in China? Maybe not as difficult as like a bicycle, it seems like, but any advice for that?
0: Well, the first thing is more importantly than that is you have to define what your product is. And I'm a 4P guy. I went to school, I got a degree in marketing and I teach a senior level marketing class every semester as a visiting professor. And I always go back to the 4Ps. In order to go to anywhere and have anything built, you have to understand, you know, what price point are you trying to build to, which would be the first P, which would be price. What's the product going to look like? So no matter whether it's a bicycle or any era pen. You have to have an idea of what the design is going to be and what that product's going to look like. The other two are the promotion of it, letting people be aware of it. And then the last one, of course, is the placement, the distribution. You have to think all those through before you design any product, wherever you have it made. But let's assume that you've defined those and you've got those four buckets all clearly defined. Then you have to figure out where to get it manufactured. Today, almost everything we get today is made in China. So then you have to do research, uh, industry research to identify who the is uh, the the manufacturers could be, and then you have to visit them and see if you've got a rapport with them. Most importantly, that you can communicate with them is they can't speak English and you can't speak Mandarin, then you're kind of at an impasse. And so we we identified people who spoke English that we could deal with, and then we had them build samples. And that's probably the most important phase of all this is to identify one, two, three, four potential suppliers and have them build you as a sample or a few samples of what their end product would be like. And once you do that, then you can then identify, okay, it may not be perfect, but we can work with it. And, and that's exactly what we did. Well, what's been the hardest part of doing this whole thing? Well, you know, there's a lot of hard things there. There's challenges in all four of those P's. The, the hardest part was defining and getting this retail distribution model figured out. If we hadn't figured that out back in 2011, would be a shadow of our former selves because the rest of the industry is trying to rely on the bicycle stores to sell it. And just to give you an overview, 10 years ago, there were about 20,000 Bicycle stores in this country today. There's about 3,500, and those are rooftops that are selling bikes. So the industry has become very consolidated. Of those 3,500 shops, many of them will never sell electric bikes. For example, if it's a road bike shop and they're catering to road bikers, they don't want to bring in electric bikes because they're fearful that it might alienate their customers. If they're a mountain bike shop, same thing is true. In fact, there's several mountain bike companies that say we will never build electric. The biggest ones don't want to build any electric bikes because they feel that same alienate. they you know that they might alienate their customer base. So when you have a base of 3,500 dealers and they're contentious on electric bikes, it makes it difficult. So our defining moment, I think, and the most difficult thing we have ended up to be the best thing we ever did. That biggest challenge turned out to be the Best thing would happen to us because now we have 108 stores open, I think, right now, and opening two or three a month. These places are independent entrepreneurs that we train. We we give them all the tools they need to be successful as a retailer, and we're loyal to them, and they're loyal to us. So we built our model around the Harley-Davidson model because I don't know if you're aware of it or not. Harley Harley-Davidson has over 50% market share. You know they compete against people you've never heard of, like BMW, Yamaha, uh, Honda. In the motorcycle space. And of course, we've heard of these people. And those are their competitors. All combined, they do not sell as many motorcycles as, as Harley Davidson does. So what has Harley Davidson done right? Well, first of all, they have their own stores, right? Everybody knows what a Harley Davidson dealership looks like. And you go in there and they offer the bikes, they offer accessories, they offer service, they offer rides, uh, hog, the, the, their owner's group, Harley owner's group is called hog. So they do all these things. And they, and, and they also rent the Harleys. You go to a lot of places around the world and rent a Harley to tour around wherever you're going to go. So we took a a page out of their playbook and followed it almost to a T, except of course, we're in the bicycle market. What's interesting about it is today, Pedego outsells all the big bike companies combined. So while we don't have over 50% market share because there's 106 players out there, we're rapidly gaining market share in a growing market, whether it be Trek or Specialized or Cannondale or Giant. Those four companies combined don't sell as many electric bikes as Pedego does. And why? Well, they're trying to go through their traditional distribution. you know they've got, they've got legacy situation with bike shops who are contemptuous against electric bikes. So they can't radically change that. So they're in a difficult time competing. And on top of that, they're building the wrong product for the market. They're building bicycles. They're taking the regular bicycles and they're strapping motors to them. For example, they're putting a motor and they're using the two screws that are designed to hold a water bottle and they're strapping a motor, uh, I'm sorry, a battery to it. And, uh, they don't have any appeal. The only people that might be buying them are cyclists. And guess who doesn't buy an electric bike? A cyclist. So our approach has been because of this challenge, it's allowed us to build a moat around our business that keeps the competition out. So as I said earlier, when I started, there were six companies making electric bikes. Now there's 106, probably more. They're having the same challenge as we did. They don't have any defined distribution that's proven that works. The bike shops continue to fail selling electric bikes, even if the owner thinks it's a good idea and he sees it, that we need to carry these, they end up in the back of the store. They end up not being charged. They don't allow people to test ride and God forbid, let anybody rent one. Uh, How can we do that? Then it would be a used bike. So they're running into all the challenges that we did that we figured out back in 2011 were a challenge and we solved them. And to this day, here we are now, six years later. None of them have figured out what we figured out, and I don't mind sharing it because even if they hear this and they they figure it out, I'm six years ahead of them. I'm not stopping. We're going to continue to grow stores. We think in the next five years we can add 100 stores a year, and we can easily get to have five or five or six hundred stores worldwide, doing nothing but selling Pedigo. And in a world where retail is being challenged, our business model works because we've got a Harley type situation. We've got a Tesla type situation. We're we're first to market, which is something that that I think has been important. And we've executed well.
1: Is there any other companies that we could look at this type of model and try to understand it if we wanted to have a similar type of business? Well, there's a lot of companies
0: out there that that I look at that I admire and recognize that what they do, the the best one and the most well-known and the most documented is the Apple store you know if you think back in the uh, a number of years ago the apple was something that the that the graphic design field used they tried to get them in as students but the general population weren't apple centric they were buying hps or dells or gateways or go down the list, IBM computers. Today, Apple's the most successful computer brand in the world. And what did they do different? Well, they opened up Apple stores. And when you go to an Apple store, you're going to get an Apple product there. You're not going to find an HP, a Dell, or, or any other product there. And because they were first to market and they executed well, they were successful. Now, it doesn't mean that Dell and Gateway and, and Samsung and Sony and all these other computer companies tried to do the same thing. They all failed. And Apple continues to grow and flourish. We're better in Known companies, arguably with excellent products, did very well. So that would be the the the, uh, the most obvious comparison. And I've mentioned Tesla before. Tesla's got their own stores, but Tesla did something different. They built a different moat around their business. Their moat is based on the fact that they have almost a 1,000 supercharger stations scattered around the world, which means if you have one of these cars and you're going to take it, take it on a trip, you can charge it up in less than an hour and get another 250 miles range. If you buy anybody else's electric car, anybody's, you can't do that. you have to wait 8 hours to get a 250 mile charge because they don't have the supercharger capability. The first company to do this, I read last week, is Porsche. They've built their first supercharger in Germany, okay, but they're they're 5 years behind the time. How long will it take them to catch up with Tesla, who by the way is adding superchargers on a daily basis. So, in each category there's a different way to build a moat, but my advice to anybody that is an entrepreneur is to build your brand your brand allows you to get the recognition by the customer um, when they think. In our case, our goal was to make Pedego ubiquitous with electric bikes, and we've certainly been successful in doing that in certain geographic locations. Absolutely, here in Southern California, you can't mention electric bike without Pedego being in the subject line. But, and we're still expanding that all over the world. Nobody else has been able to do that. I don't. I don't even think that the bicycle industry has a ubiquitous brand. One that has it. So, find a market where there isn't one and create one.
1: We we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Do you have any like last words of wisdom or wish you'd had known when you were younger? And especially like those young entrepreneurs who are starting to build their own business. And what would be your advice to them?
0: Well, it's it's very simple. The success that we've had at Pedigo has been driven by passion. And I don't believe you can be successful in business today without having a an undying passion for what it is you're doing. So in my case, I love these electric bikes. I love the fact that I put smiles on people's faces that we're able to put people in business and be successful and find some some satisfaction in uh, in owning a Pedego store. We're also able to share the happiness and joy that we get by people buying our products because everybody who gets one and goes out riding again, they always have a big smile on their face when they talk about it. And that's evidenced by all the reviews we get on the internet and the Pedego E-Bike Owners Group Facebook page. Every day people are posting pictures about where they rode their bike, how much fun they have and how it's changed their lives. So you got to make a difference. You've got to be passionate about it. So if you didn't like bikes and you said, well, you know, I would say, well, what's your hobby? What are you passionate about? And you might say, well, I love yoga. Well, I would say then I would go study Lululemon And I would go look at the yoga business and decide where could you fit in in the yoga business? There's a business opportunity in about any product you can think of and go down the list of other ones. If you're a techie and you're, you're into, uh, into building websites, you like the idea, then then become a website developer. So anything you want to do, you've got to be passionate about it because today, how competitive it is, there's a lot of smart people in the world and there's a lot of information that's available on the internet. You can find out just about anything about anybody. You need to find something you're passionate about so you'll be good at. So your work and your off time are blended into one. So in essence, you're working every waking hour you're there because you're constantly thinking about it. And that's not anything I discovered until I got in the electric bike business. I certainly enjoyed the time I had when I was in the automotive chemical business and I liked it. I sure didn't love it. I love this business. And to me, I haven't worked a day since I started Pedigo. Uh, sure, it's been hard. Sure, there's difficult times, but you have that in your personal life. It's been one big social experience for me.
1: We appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. If someone wanted to say thank you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Well, just send an email to me at don at pedigo.com. And pedigo is spelled P-E-D, like pedal, P-E-D-E. The E means energy or uh, electricity, your own energy or energy from the bike. And then you go. So it's pedigo at dot com. So don at pedigo.com.
1: Thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thank you. YOLO and OLA. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, then we would love for you to leave us a five-star review. It helps other potential listeners enjoy this fabulous show just like you. And it'll take less than 69 seconds to do it. I promise. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next episode.